We had an open and candid conversation about our intentions and our priorities. It was clear. He was clear and I was clear. President Biden spoke with reporters today after meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. It's Monday, November 14th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. We'll explain what the two presidents talked about and how it went. Also ahead, clinics that care for long COVID patients are wrestling with how to handle a condition that is still poorly understood and has no widely accepted treatments. And we remember the man who lived at the Paris airport for 18 years and was the inspiration for the Steven Spielberg movie, The Terminal. And we'll hear from a woman who insists that Africans need to stay in Senegal to build Africa's future. It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The University of Virginia community is reeling from a mass shooting on its Charlottesville campus last night. Three members of the football team were killed, two others were injured, one critically. The alleged gunman, a former UVA football player, has been arrested and faces several charges. Whitney Evans of Member Station VPM has the latest. Christopher Darnell Jones Jr. has been charged with three counts of second-degree murder and three counts of using a handgun in the commission of a felony. Police say the former UVA football player opened fire inside a charter bus carrying students returning from a field trip. Police found the bodies of Devin Handler and Deshaun Perry inside the bus at a parking garage on the school's campus. Lavelle Davis Jr. was taken to the hospital where he died. University of Virginia police say school officials had investigated Jones previously for a gun-related incident. The university has canceled all classes and university events. For NPR News, I'm Whitney Evans. President Biden's pledging there will be no new Cold War with China. Today on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali, the leaders of two world powers met face-to-face -face for the first time since Biden's election. They spoke for three hours about a range of issues. Biden says he does not believe China intends to invade Taiwan, a self-governing island claimed by China but closely allied with the U.S. And Pierre's Emily Fang says the leaders also address the North Korean nuclear threat. They talked about North Korean missile tests because the U.S. pushed China to rein in its ally, basically, to control the number of missile tests Pyongyang has been launching. They talked about the war in Ukraine, and that's why they actually made some headway. Both leaders, Xi Jinping and President Biden, agreed that nuclear weapons should be off the table and that actors like Russia, for example, should not be making nuclear threats when it comes to the war in Ukraine. NPR's Emily Fang reporting. President Biden told reporters in Bali that Democrats won't have enough votes in Congress to codify Roe versus Wade. The 1973 ruling that legalized abortion in the U.S. And Pierre Zipashivaram reports Biden is in Indonesia for the G20 summit and spoke at a media conference following his meeting with China's Xi Jinping. The president said he likely would not be able to fulfill his goal of codifying abortion rights through Congress. Democrats have maintained their slim majority in the Senate, but the House is likely to flip to Republicans. I don't think there's enough votes to codify unless something happens unusual in the House. I think we're going to get very close in the House, but I don't, I think it's going to be very close, but I don't think we're going to make it. Biden also said world leaders he spoke to in Egypt, Cambodia, and Indonesia have been very focused on U.S. election results, and he emphasized election deniers had been defeated in their races. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. This 
is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Tonight, voters in Falmouth will decide whether the police department should destroy its surplus assault weapons rather than sell them to a gun dealership. WBUR's Josie Garino talked with the woman behind the petition. Deborah Warner says it did not take a lot of time to get the 300 signatures needed to get the proposal added to the town meeting agenda. She says the point of the proposed bylaw is to prevent assault weapons from getting into the wrong hands. The retired Episcopal priest says she took action after the Uvalde school shooting in May that left 21 students and teachers dead. There's a feeling of helplessness when one hears about that and what can I do? And it was after the shooting at Uvalde that I... I just, I thought this is crazy. Warner is optimistic voters will approve the law, even though the police department has signed a contract with a local gun dealership to trade them in for credit. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. Governor Charlie Baker is in Florida for the Republican Governors Association meeting. After the midterm elections, the group is looking for ways to elect more Republican governors across the country. Baker is a moderate Republican, while the party has shifted toward alignment with former President Trump. Massachusetts is hosting a job fair where you don't even have to leave your home. The virtual event is a collaboration between all six New England states. The online fair runs for two days and it starts tomorrow. It will connect job seekers with employers from health care, education and hospitality industries. You can register to participate at mass.gov. Andover native and former Tonight Show host Jay Leno is hospitalized with burns in California. Several media outlets report that there was a fire in the garage where he stores his car collection. Variety reports that Leno told the publication he had some serious burns from a gasoline fire and needs a week or two to get back on his feet. Sports, the Celtics host the Thunder tonight over at the Garden. In the forecast, it'll be clear and cool tonight. The lows around 30 degrees, increasing clouds tomorrow, the highs around 44 Rain on Wednesday, mainly before 2 p.m. The highs will be around 50 degrees, mostly sunny on Thursday and Friday, a high of 45. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Total Wine & More, where shoppers can explore over 8,000 wines, 2,500 beers, and 4,500 spirits. More at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. In a hotel ballroom in Bali, Indonesia today, the leaders of two superpowers sat down to talk. President Biden and President Xi Jinping of China. They had a whole slate of difficult issues between their countries to work through. Relations have been fraught, but Biden told reporters this meeting today helped open up lines of communication. We're not going to be able to work everything out. I'm not suggesting it's going to, this is kumbaya, you know, everybody is going to go away with everything in agreement. But I do not believe there's a need for concern of a as one of you raised the legitimate question, a new Cold War. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez was there in Bali. He joins us now. Hey, Franco. Hey, Mary Louise. So I know President Xi and President Biden have spoken several times since Biden took over as president, but this was their first face-to-face meeting in a in a long time, right? What was it like inside the room? I mean, there was a lot of energy from the staff all the way to the leaders. And the leaders, they were smiling and they looked happy to see each other as they shook hands. You know, they walked into a large ballroom together and sat down across from each other at these long tables. And the tables were probably spaced about 12 feet apart, each flanked by their top advisors. And both of them said that they wanted to find ways to address 
addressed their differences. Here's President Xi speaking through a translator. In our meeting today, I'm ready to have a candid, as we always did, have a candid and in-depth exchange of views with you on issues of strategic importance in China-U.S. relations and on major global and regional issues. Now, the meeting lasted for about three hours. There were no big breakthroughs or joint statements afterward. And the White House has said ahead of the meeting that they weren't expecting that. But, you know, they did agree to keep talking, and Secretary of State Antony Blinken will travel to China to follow up. Okay, so they agreed to keep talking. I suppose one of the thorniest issues they, they need to talk about is the status of Taiwan, which China claims, claims the self-governed island as its own. President Biden has said in the past that he is prepared to defend Taiwan if it comes to that. What did he have to say on that today? Well, Biden told reporters that the two leaders had an, quote, open and candid conversation about their intentions and priorities. And he said he wants to see issues resolved peacefully. And he does think that can be done. I do not think there's any imminent attempt on the part of China to invade Taiwan. And I uh, made it clear that our policy in Taiwan has not changed at all. But there is concern, Mary Louise, in China about what Biden has said in the past about defending Taiwan. And after the meeting today, a spokeswoman for the Chinese government said that, quote, instead of talking in one way and acting in another, the United States needs to honor its commitments with concrete action. Franco, what about Russia? Did Russia come up? Did they talk about the war in Ukraine? Yeah, the White House says that Biden brought up the war. Officials say they agreed that they were both opposed to the, quote, use or threat of use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And this is important because China has maintained a working relationship with Russia during this conflict. So Beijing is indicating its disapproval of past comments Russian President Vladimir Putin has made about nuclear weapons. Biden has also said he talked to Xi about North Korea's nuclear tests. And he warned that the U.S. would need to take more defensive actions if there are more nuclear tests. Biden said he wants Xi to make it clear to North Korea that they should not engage in long-range nuclear tests. That is NPR's Franco Ordonez reporting today from Bali. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mary Louise. We have known about long COVID since the early months of the pandemic, and specialty long COVID clinics have popped up all over the country. But there is still a lack of evidence for how to treat it. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN in Nashville reports that getting better still involves trial and error and a lot of patience. I still have all of that kind of stuff. Medical equipment is still strewn around the house, even though Rick Lucas has been home from the hospital nearly two years. He picks up a spirometer, which measures his lung capacity, and takes a deep breath, though not as deep as he'd like. They've been sitting around, not walking around today, so my lungs are not expanded. But he's come a long way. In the summer of 2020, Lucas went into the hospital near his home in Hendersonville, Tennessee. Pretty soon he was transferred to a COVID unit in Nashville and put on a ventilator. He didn't come home for five months. And when he did, his wife Cindy had to do everything. It wasn't clear what ailments were just from being on a vent so long and what was from this new mysterious condition called long COVID. I had no doubt that I was going to be back to normal. In fact, I was wanting to go to work, oh, what, no. four months after I got home? I said, well, you know what? Just get up and go. You can't drive. 
You can't walk, but hey, let's go in for an interview. It Tell me how that works. Two weeks after I got home from the hospital that I went back to work. He's been taking short-term assignments this year in his old field as a nursing home administrator, but he's still on partial disability. It's estimated that there have been millions of Americans with long COVID symptoms, and each experience is unique. For some, the lingering symptoms are worse than the initial sickness. Others, like Lucas, were on death's door and have just had more of a roller coaster of recovery than you'd expect. Lucas had the brain fog, fatigue, depression. He'd start getting energy back, then go try some light yard work and end up in the hospital with pneumonia. And there's really no telling why some are shaking the symptoms after a few years and others aren't getting better, says Dr. Stephen Deeks. There's absolutely nothing anywhere that's clear about long COVID. We have a guess at how frequently it happens. But right now, we're really, everyone's in a data-free zone. Deeks is an infectious disease specialist at the University of California, San Francisco. Researchers are still trying to establish the underlying cause. Theories include inflammation, autoimmunity, even bits of the virus left in the body. Deeks says there need to be big national sites where researchers can work together on promising treatments. There are specialized COVID clinics established by dozens of big medical centers casting a wide net for cures. And I'm following this stuff on social media, looking for a home run. Patients, especially those who were perfectly healthy pre-COVID, are desperate and willing to try anything. But there's some tension building in the medical community on this grab bag approach. Dr. Kristen England says a bunch of one-patient experiments could muddy the waters for research. She oversees more than 2,000 long COVID patients at the Cleveland Clinic. I'd rather not just kind of one-off try things with people because we really do need to get more data and evidence-based data. So that means we need to try and put things in some sort of a protocol moving forward. It's not that she doesn't get the urgency. She's experienced her own long COVID symptoms. She felt terrible for months after getting COVID in 2020. Literally taking naps on the floor in my office uh, in the afternoon. So she says the biggest job of these long COVID clinics is still to validate patients and give them some hope. She tries to stick with proven therapies. So when they have symptoms like where they get dizzy and their heart races when they stand up, that she can treat. Otherwise, there's a lot of focus on diet, exercise, and mindfulness. But other doctors are throwing all sorts of things at the wall. At the Lucas House in Tennessee, the kitchen counter can barely contain all the pill bottles. This is the one Mimentine that was for memory. We discovered his memory was worse. But other pills seem to help. Cindy Lucas suggested testosterone, and their doctor gave it a shot. He said, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but I bet that would work. And it did. We saw a huge improvement in his energy. That doctor was Stephen Heyman, who leads the long COVID clinic at Ascension St. Thomas. People like myself are getting a little bit out of over my skis trying to look for things that I can try. Heyman's also right there struggling through long COVID. He thought he was past the memory lapses and breathing trouble, then caught COVID a second time and feels more fatigued than ever. He's looking at medications used for addiction and cholesterol, and he's decided he may just have to be a guinea pig himself. Uh, directly, I'm going to have to do use my expertise to try and find out why I don't feel well. Heyman says he doesn't have years to waste waiting for a proven long COVID cure. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. This story comes from NPR's partnership with Nashville Public Radio and Kaiser Health News.
He may have been the world's most famous homeless person. Mirhan Karimi Nasseri was an Iranian national who lived at Paris's Charles de Gaulle Airport for 18 years. He died over the weekend at the age of 77. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley has his story. For a man who never reached his final destination, he inspired a lot of art. An opera, a book, and two movies, including Steven Spielberg's 2004 film The Terminal, starring Tom Hanks. Are you headed for home? Uh, no, I am delayed a uh, long time. But the real life of Merhan Karimi Nasseri was not as happy as the Hollywood version. Nasseri was born in 1945 from a brief liaison between an Iranian father and a British mother who never acknowledged him. At the age of 43, he left for Britain to try to find her. But after Iranian officials stripped him of his passport and he had no other identity papers, he was unable to stay in Britain. He was expelled from Belgium, the Netherlands, and Germany, too. But in 1988, France allowed Nasseri to stay as long as he remained in the airport. Here he is speaking in 1999. I think nobody can live uh, 11 years in such a situation. I am unique immigration case. Nasseri became a well-known figure. Airport workers fondly called him Sir Alfred. Surrounded by his possessions on an airport couch, he did interviews with the media and received mail from passengers hoping to meet him on a layover. He was treated by airport doctor Philippe Bargain. Very quickly, he had a network of people around him who liked him and helped him, said Bargain. He was the first citizen of Charles de Gaulle Airport. Despite eventually getting refugee status in France, Nasseri never wanted to leave the airport. He was finally forced to in 2006 to be hospitalized. He lived on the outside for several years in a hostel. But in September, Nasseri returned to live at Charles de Gaulle Airport one final time. He was found dead Saturday in Terminal 2F. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 42 degrees in Boston at 418. Ahead here on WBUR on All Things Considered, one woman's case for remaining in Senegal. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College's online graduate certificate in school leadership, a principal prep program. Apply now for January at williamjames.edu. And the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help put joy on every plate this holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. In business news, Massachusetts residents who receive Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, benefits will now be able to buy groceries online from Big Y. The Springfield-based supermarket announced it will accept online SNAP debit card payments through the Instacart Marketplace. Big Y joins 17 other major retailers in the state that allow SNAP purchases online. SNAP benefits cannot be used for delivery fees. On Wall Street today, stocks closed lower. The Dow was down six-tenths of a percent at 33,537. NASDAQ off 1.12% at 11,196. And the S&P 500 down about nine-tenths of a percent at 39.57. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhill Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses, stanhopeframers.com. 
and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a MedEx Medicare supplemental plan that works for you. Visit bluecrossma.com go. In the forecast, it'll be clear and cool tonight. The lows around 30 degrees. Increasing clouds tomorrow, high 44. Rain on Wednesday, mainly before 2 p.m. The high's around 50. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity, with Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There's a through line connecting three of the biggest stories of our time climate change, migration, and political extremism. We're taking a journey that connects these dots, traveling from Senegal to Morocco to Spain. And it begins with a question that millions of people experiencing climate change are wrestling with. Do I stay or go? Life in the Senegalese city of Saint Louis is defined by water and the fish that live in it. There are daily patterns. Fishing boats called pirogues go out each morning at four and come back every afternoon. There are yearly cycles, too. The biggest pirogues take a pause every fall when people repair and repaint for the new season. Every evening, the spot where smaller boats come ashore becomes a pop-up market. And here, the strict gender roles in San Luis become clear. While men unload their catch, women wade into the water up to their knees. Men hoist bright-eyed swordfish, tuna, and boxes piled with snapper and mahi-mahi. And the fish that are not sold fresh? Well, they wind up a five-minute walk from where the boats land, where women work at the Fish Transformation Center. The first thing that hits you when you arrive here is the smell. It's not a bad smell, but it's a sharp, pungent smell of salt and fish and fermentation. It's a hot day, and the fresh catch won't stay fresh for long. So this is a center where people, they use the term transform the fish into products that can be shipped great distances inland. And the key tool for the transformation is salt. Once we wash the fish, we put it in these containers, and then we put salt on it. Then we close it for three or four days, then we sell it. Day Maram Jope learned the art of fish preservation from her mother. A basin at her feet is full of salted fish. This will last months without refrigeration. I like this kind of job better than any other job. Why? What do you love about it? I earn my own living. I don't ask anyone for money. And if I have a problem, I can solve it myself. We can see the ocean very close right here. When you were a child, how far away was it when your mother was doing this work? It was very far from here. But now the sea is advancing. Do you worry that someday the sea might be here and you will not be able to work here? We're very worried about that. One day, we don't know. We're really worried. What will you do if that happens? Run away and see if the government can help us? (laughs) Run away to Spain, maybe? (laughs) 
No, that's too complicated. But many men are running away to Europe. It's not just the pressures of climate change. Boats from Europe and China are scooping up Senegal's fish, so it's harder than ever for Senegalese people to make a living from the sea. The situation worries a matriarch named Yaram Fall. She's the head of an economic interest group for the women who preserve fish. She represents hundreds of Senegalese women who do her kind of work. In late afternoon, she pours tea in the second floor of her home. Ocean waves crash in the background just outside her door. The sea destroyed many of the homes here during a flood a couple of years ago. It wasn't even a storm, just a tide higher than anyone here had seen in decades. But Yaram Fall insists she's not going anywhere. I have a motto saying that I'm going to stay here, work here, and succeed here. Stay here, work here, succeed here. As someone who deals with fish every day, she has seen the ways that commercial overfishing and climate change are squeezing the people of San Luis. There are species who are disappearing. Like mackerel, they used to be abundant starting in the fall. Now we wait until the month of February before we can see those species. We've spoken to so many fishermen who say, I cannot earn a living here, so I'm going to Europe. Do you know many people who have left, who have given up? There are a lot of them said that they're going to go to Europe, but I think this is not the good solution. And so when a young man says, I have to leave, what do you say to him? They don't understand. I've been to many European countries, such as Italy, and it's not easy there. You can find a job, but here too, there is a job. You have to believe in it. Yarmfall travels all over the world for culinary and cultural events, representing the Senegalese women who preserve fish. And she's seen how Senegalese people live in Switzerland, in Canada. She is adamant the grass is not greener over there. Taxes are higher, she says. One meal of smoked fish in Italy costs what she'd pay for three days of food at home. The development of Africa comes from its own people. Hmm. All those young people, they would like to go. That must be frustrating for you. Yes. Outside her balcony, we hear a rhythmic chanting. On the beach, men are organizing the fishing nets, a row of arms pulling in rhythm, hand over hand. Even little kids join in. Two weeks later, we are more than 2,000 miles away in southern Spain. On a strawberry farm, workers from across sub-Saharan Africa poke seedlings into a raised bed. One of these migrant farm workers is from that coastal town in Senegal. His name is Abdoulaye Beye. I pull out my phone and show him the video of the men organizing the nets on the shore where he used to live. <laughs> His face <laughs> lights <laughs> up. That's your family? Then they say, you know? It's San Luis, yeah, yes. Genda. Your name is Ah, you're from there. Your name is San Luis. Those are my people, he says. 
We're all like family in that community. In 2006, he gave up his life as a fisherman. Bayer worked as an undocumented immigrant for 10 years in Spain, 10 years without seeing his wife or son. Now he has papers and can go back to visit, and he sends them two euros out of every five he earns. Is the life in Spain more difficult than the fishing life in Senegal? This is harder work, but you can make more money here than in Senegal. Fishing is also hard, but you don't make that much money. In San Luis, we spoke to a woman named Yaram Fall. She's the head of the group of women who preserve fish. And she said to us, people need to stay because the future of Africa will be built by Africans. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's a good rule, but there's no work there. So you can't find work, and if you find work, it's not enough to make a living. It's barely enough to eat. Sometimes when he eats fish in Spain, he thinks about where his meal came from. He wonders whether commercial trawlers from Europe pulled the fish out of the Senegalese waters he used to sail off the coast of San Luis. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 41 degrees in Boston at 429. Ahead on All Things Considered, the University of Virginia is grieving after a man opened fire on a bus full of students returning from a field trip yesterday, killing three of the university's football players and wounding two others. That's just ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. It'll be clear and cool tonight. The low's around 30 degrees. Increasing clouds tomorrow, high around 44. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. And Independent Education Group, guiding families seeking private and therapeutic school admissions and student academic advising. More at independenteducationgroup.com. Clint Smith is an expert on historical monuments, how memorials reckon with slavery in the U.S., and more recently, how they enshrine Holocaust victims in Germany. It's impossible to sort of go anywhere without encountering something that is reminding you of what happened there. What can be learned from grappling with the past? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden meets with leaders of the G20 nations in a few hours. He's in Indonesia for the summit and says he is looking forward to his next working G20 session. The G20 has been an important forum for the world's largest economies to work together for the good of people everywhere. And I'm looking forward to our meetings tomorrow. Earlier, Biden met with Chinese President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the summit. Biden says he is not looking for conflict with China, but rather ways to manage vigorous U.S. competition with Beijing. Officials in Charlottesville, Virginia, have arrested the suspect in last night's shooting at the University of Virginia. Three members of the university's football team have been killed and two others wounded. Separately, police in northern Idaho are investigating the suspicious deaths of four University of Idaho students who were discovered yesterday in the town of Moscow. Authorities have not disclosed how they died. 
In Georgia, the campaign for the U.S. Senate is underway ahead of the runoff election on December 6th. Incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock is facing Republican challenger Herschel Walker. From member station WABE, Sam Greenglass reports from Atlanta on Georgia's early voting provisions. Early voting is required to begin by Monday, November 28th. Counties can choose to start earlier. What they can't do is offer voting on Thanksgiving or the day after, a state holiday originally marking Robert E. Lee's birthday. Georgia law also prevents Saturday early voting within two days of a holiday. That rule didn't cause too many problems in the past, but when Georgia's new election law condensed the runoff from nine to four weeks, it also meant that with Thanksgiving, there'd be no window for Saturday voting. Litigation over the rule is possible. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. On Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average lost more than 200 points today to end the day at 33,536. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Google has agreed to pay more than $390 million to Massachusetts and 39 other states over how the company tracked users' locations. Massachusetts is expected to get $9.3 million from the settlement. State attorneys general claim Google continued to collect personal information even after consumers opted out of being tracked by the company. The AGs call the agreement the largest multi-state privacy settlement in U.S. history. The head of the state's Republican Party is vowing the state GOP will live on to fight another day. A letter to supporters comes less than a week after the party lost every statewide race, as well as several down-ballot contests in districts that had long been represented by Republicans. Chairman Jim Lyons wrote party leadership remains committed to the recalibration of the Massachusetts Republican Party towards representing the working and middle classes. Some party officials are looking to oust Lyons after last week's dismal results. State regulators are signaling they'll push to limit how much sports betting-related advertising people in Massachusetts will see. Massachusetts Gaming Commissioner Eileen O'Brien grilled a panel of broadcasters and sports league representatives on the topic at a meeting today. Sean McGrail of Nesson says regulators should expect sports books to market themselves aggressively. Boston's a big city, and then when you see bus boards and and uh, outdoor and uh, you know there's there's a lot of probably unfettered uh, advertising mediums that that uh, beyond sports franchises and broadcast and I mean they're going to take a lot of this as well too. The state sports betting program is scheduled to open early next year. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 23rd, semesteroff.com. Celtics host the Thunder tonight over at the Garden. The forecast clear and cool tonight, low around 30. Increasing clouds tomorrow, highs around 44 degrees. Rain on Wednesday, mainly before 2 p.m. The highs will be around 50. Right now it's 41 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jopaigo, part of Johns Hopkins, and dedicated to saving lives, improving health, and transforming the future of women. Their name is challenging, but so is their work, at jhpiego.org. And from Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. 
Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Today, classes were canceled on college campuses in Virginia and in Idaho after separate but devastating events yesterday. At the University of Idaho, four students were found dead at a house near campus. Police are investigating the deaths as homicides. And in Charlottesville, home of the University of Virginia, today officials announced they had arrested the lone suspect in a shooting that left three students dead and sent two to the hospital. The suspect, a 22-year-old student, was picked up in a suburb of Richmond and charged with three counts of second-degree murder. Sandy Hausman is Charlottesville Bureau Chief for Virginia Public Radio. Hey, Sandy. Hello. Give us some details of what exactly happened last night. Well, the university held a news conference today to share some details of what now appears to have been a truly terrifying attack. There were about 25 students who'd gone up to Washington for a play, and they returned last night aboard a chartered bus at around 10 o'clock, and at that point, someone on the bus started shooting, killing three young men, all of them promising members of the UVA football team. Deshaun Perry from Florida and Devin Chandler from North Carolina were killed on the bus. Their teammate, Lavelle Davis of South Carolina, was rushed to UVA's medical center, where he died from his wounds. Two other students are hospitalized. Their names have not been released, and we don't know if they played football for UVA. What do we know about the suspect? Christopher Darnell Jones Jr. had also been on the university's football team in 2018, but UVA President Jim Ryan said he was no longer playing. To my knowledge, he was no longer on the football team and hadn't been on the team for over a year. We don't know whether he left voluntarily or was cut, and the university couldn't say if he was acquainted with the victims of Sunday night shooting. What they did say was that Jones had come to the attention of a threat assessment team on campus in September because he allegedly claimed to have a gun. But in the end, campus police chief Tim Longo said no action was taken. The comment about Mr. Jones owning a gun was not made in conjunction with any threats. The threat assessment team questioned Jones' roommate, who said he had not seen a weapon, but in the course of their probe, investigators discovered a criminal charge that Jones had failed to disclose. We learned of a prior criminal incident involving a concealed weapon violation that occurred outside the city of Charlottesville in February of 2021. It's required as a student at the University of Virginia to report that, and he never did. And so the university has taken appropriate administrative charges. Sandy, I'm, I'm trying to imagine what this has been like for students on campus with a manhunt underway in, in their college town. What are they telling you? It was a real nightmare. I spoke with the editor of the student newspaper, Eva Suravel, who said the university shared information about the emergency with text messages every 15 minutes. Students were at first told to shelter in place, but later a text advised them to run, hide, fight. That was something I never thought I would see pop up on my phone. The lockdown continued until around 11 this morning. Classes were canceled, and Suraval said students were offered counseling to deal with the emotional fallout from what happened. We're all Gen Z. We've grown up watching students, people our age, children, being shot in schools. We've grown up with school shooting drills, but that doesn't make you any more prepared for it to be your school. 
UVA President Jim Ryan wrote to students this morning saying he was heartbroken and pledging to organize a community event so students, faculty, and staff could grieve together. Sandy Hausman of WVTF in Charlottesville, thank you. You're welcome. The collapse of one of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchanges called FTX has been described as truly stunning, an implosion, a meltdown. And the whole thing's calling into question the stability of crypto in general at a time when Bitcoin is floundering and the lack of regulation means there is no backstop, no one to step in for the millions of investors when platforms go belly up. We wanted to try to figure out what happens now. So we called up Laura Shin. She hosts the Crypto Podcast Unchained. Hey, Laura. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi. So, you know, FTX's founder is obviously no longer the company's CEO. Now John Ray is in charge, and he's someone with a lot of experience, right, coming in the middle of chaos like this. He was the guy who was brought in after Enron collapsed. Isn't that right? Yeah, and, you know, that makes a lot of sense because this is, I think, going to be a very messy bankruptcy. Um, There's about 130 different entities that filed for bankruptcy along with FTX. Well, investors are now calling this moment a crypto winter, an extended downturn. And I'm curious, do you think that there's any indication it could lead to more than that, more than some extended downturn? It's highly likely that this will have knock-on effects, that there will be contagion, because FTX has a lot of kind of larger entities within crypto that had their money stuck on the exchange. One of the lenders said that about $170 million of theirs was trapped on the exchange. There was one of the hedge funds or venture funds that was close to the FTX group, and they said it was $25 million. There was another one that just came out today again. So there are a number of different crypto entities that basically trusted FTX because it was seen as one of the exchanges that was more buttoned up than kind of traditional um, crypto exchanges have been uh, that have more of that Wild West reputation. And so that's why it was such a big shocker and frankly, why the reaction from the crypto community has been so intense. You mentioned aspects of crypto had sort of this Wild West reputation. I mean, yeah, the crypto world exists outside of regulation, which for some is exactly part of the appeal. But let me ask you, with so much volatility, could this moment right now be a moment when federal regulators will decide to get involved finally? What do you think? For sure. They will definitely want to pursue enforcement actions here. That's very clear. When you have something this magnitude that happens, and especially because Sam Bankman-Fried was... Sam Bankman-Fried being the former CEO of FTX. Right. He was essentially the crypto CEO who was kind of closest to a lot of the lawmakers and regulators. It's a little bit of a black eye for them in the sense that the person who was kind of courting favor with them most is also now the person who, uh, you know, appears to have been perpetrating a sort of Theranos-level fraud. Well, there are some people in crypto, right, like some investors, some owners of exchanges who actually would welcome regulation in this world. Can you talk about that piece? Over the past few years, we have seen a number of bipartisan bills that are focused on crypto that have been introduced. Not many of them actually have gotten very far until this fall. And in an ironic twist, the bill that had 
kind of the greatest chance of being passed relatively soon is one that Sam Bankman-Fried himself was pushing. And so obviously now this has really caused that, uh, you know, that bill's um, passage to come into question. So who knows exactly what will happen at this point, but I do think that potentially some lawmakers might come away with the lesson that regulatory clarity is necessary and that new laws are necessary. Um, you know, whether or not they're going to be able to convince others is, you know, remains to be seen. That is Laura Shin, host of the Unchained podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And this is NPR News. Turkey has maintained close ties with Russia as it takes a middle road on the war in Ukraine. That concerns the U.S., but Turkish officials say it's useful. They cite Russia's recent decision to resume cooperation with grain shipments from Ukraine, which came after a call between the Turkish and Russian presidents. Turkey has also mediated prisoner exchanges. Now it wants to get Ukraine and Russia talking about ways to end the war. NPR's Fatma Tanis reports. Pro-Ukrainian without being anti-Russian. That's how Turkish officials have described the country's position. That strategy has essentially paid off for Turkey. That's Sinan Ulgen, senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Turkey has supported Ukraine, including sending armed drones that helped slow the Russian advance early in the war. And Turkey's urged Russia to return all occupied territories to Ukraine, including Crimea, which Russia took in 2014. But Ugen notes... The Turkish president has been able to meet both Putin and Zelensky, one of the very few world leaders who have been able to do that. That's because Turkey's also refused to join in on Western sanctions against Russia. Over the months, trade between the two countries has increased steeply, drawing criticism from the West and even questions of Turkey's loyalty to NATO. But it has given Turkey leverage over Russia. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's chief advisor, Ibrahim Kalin, is involved in meetings with both Russian and Ukrainian officials. He told NPR that as much as the war is about Ukrainian territorial integrity for Russia, he says, there's a larger geopolitical picture. Russia, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with their arguments or not, is interested in finding and reaching a new deal with the West, and more particularly with the United States. And this is the main issue. I think that will occupy us all for the years to come. Cullen says Turkey sees room for diplomacy in the war, impossible as it may seem, and it wants to keep lines open to both countries, urging Western allies to do the same. We have to play this role because at the end of the day, if everyone burns bridges with both sides, with the Russians or Ukrainians for some others, then who is going to talk to them? In a war like this, Cullen says, there are two ways to bring it to an end. You can try to stop this with an overarching peace deal, or you go for, uh, you know, more localized solutions, you know, a ceasefire here, de-escalation here, a prisoner exchange here, a grain deal here. The second model has been working for the last seven, eight months. Turkish leaders hope to build on the success of the deal that got Russia and Ukraine cooperating to allow grain shipments through the war zone and hope to get them negotiating for peace. But even Cullen acknowledges that ongoing Russian attacks on civilian targets make it harder for Turkey to maintain its position. And Sinan Ulgen with the Carnegie Endowment says there could be more Western pressure on Turkey. This stance can indeed be jeopardized 
if and when the West is uh, going to increase and strengthen sanctions against Russia. The U.S. has nudged Ukraine to consider negotiations eventually, and U.S. and Russian officials are meeting in Turkey this week to discuss American citizens held in Russia and nuclear stability. A senior State Department official asking not to be named while discussing policy options recently told NPR that the U.S. would work with Turkey's effort for a diplomatic solution, but that, quote, it can only happen when Russia is not destroying civilian infrastructure and launching unjustified attacks on Ukraine. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Istanbul. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown, 41 degrees in Boston at 448. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll have a review of Steven Spielberg's new film, The Fablemans. It's a fictionalized version of his life story growing up a budding filmmaker in the 1960s in Arizona. That's ahead here on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Clark where you can begin your kitchen project by exploring Sub-Zero and Wolf Appliances. Details about showrooms in Boston and Milford at ClarkLiving.com. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. CitysideSubaru.com. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to go to work. The forecast clear and cool tonight. The lows will be around 30 degrees. Increasing clouds tomorrow. The highs will be around 44 degrees. Again, right now it's 41 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Stage Company, presenting Jonathan Larson's Tony and Pulitzer-winning rock musical, Rent. Runs now through December 4th, theumbrellastage.org. Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. Stanhopeframers.com. Is the supply chain better? Yes. Is it all the way back? No. So instead of growing our business, we're triaging issues that we didn't even know could exist, much less we're going to persist for, you know, four to six months. I'm Kai Rizdahl, transforming business and power plant parts. Next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Steven Spielberg has been making movies for decades about everything from giant sharks and adorable aliens to Abraham Lincoln. Last year, he even made a musical. But in his latest film, the director is telling his most personal story. Critic Bob Mondello says The Fablemans is about a suburban youngster who picked up a movie camera six decades ago and became, in a word, Spielbergian. January 1952, six-year-old Sammy Fableman is not thrilled that his folks are dragging him to see The Greatest Show on Earth, his first movie. What he's heard about movies sounds awful. You sit in the dark, strangers everywhere, giants up there telling stories. His scientist dad's no help. He starts talking about 24 frames a second, and while his mom means to reassure... Movies are dreams. That's almost worse. Sometimes dreams are scary. But once they're inside, the movie does what movies do. The story's about a circus, but what gets to Sammy is the train, or rather the train crash. 
terrified. He's still wide-eyed on the drive home, but later he asks for a model train set for Hanukkah and, to Dad's distress, starts crashing the train. Sammy? Mom, played by a vibrant Michelle Williams, has an idea. We're going to use Daddy's camera to film it. Only crash the train once, okay? Then after we get the film developed, you can watch it crash over and over till it's not so scary anymore. This is a slight variation on the personal origin story Spielberg's been telling interviewers for years, and bringing it to life on screen is more than just a neat trick, especially if you think about the train sequences he put in everything from his Indiana Jones movies to Schindler's List. What follows feels just as heartfelt, a kid discovering the power his movies can have on, say, family members when his grandmother dies. I want you to make a camping trip. Uh, you can learn how the editing machine works while you do this. It'll make your mom feel better. Yeah. That last night when she danced in the headlights, that'd be great. Get to it tomorrow, okay? Tomorrow's when we start shooting. Side note here. If you look on the web... <laughs> Escape to Nowhere, we're shooting all weekend. Shooting this weekend. You'll find Escape to Nowhere, which Spielberg made with his Boy Scout troop when he was 13. We got like 40 guys coming to be in the movie. I'll, I'll work on all the camping trips stuff on Monday. I'm asking you to do this now for your mom. Yeah, and She's... I said that I will, just not tomorrow. Don't Please. be selfish, she just lost her mother. That's more important than your hobby. Dad, can you stop calling it a hobby? It'll cheer her up watching this. It's something we can her do. Her mom to, just to... died. It's, it's, how is that going to cheer her up? Because you made it for her. Dad, played by Paul Dano, is right. But Gabriel LaBelle's adolescent Sammy will learn more than he wants to in making that little camping film, discovering that the camera sometimes sees things the eye doesn't. About relationships, say, and a family friend, played by Seth Rogen. You think whatever bad things you want about me, kiddo, but you stop making movies, it'll break your mother's heart. You will break her heart, I mean it. She doesn't deserve that, not from anybody, least of all from you. Spielberg co-wrote The Fablemans with his frequent collaborator Tony Kushner, and he surrounded the cast with off-screen veterans of his other movies. This is in many senses a family affair dedicated to his mom and dad, who are depicted with a clear eye and less sentiment than you might expect. But more than a portrait of an artist's upbringing, The Fablemans is a celebration of the art he chose, or maybe that chose him, cinema. As Sammy invents and explores and directs, we see it dawn on him, as it must have on Spielberg, that this medium that so scared him at first is capable not just of revealing truths, but of shaping them. I'm Bob Mandela. Now, time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Betsy Cox met her unsung hero in 2014, just a few weeks after her son Blake was born. The family didn't have a lot of money at the time, and they lived in a townhouse that could get chilly. So one cool morning, Betsy strapped Blake into his car seat and drove over to a local big box store to to pick up a space heater. It was one of those first cold mornings where everything felt like a struggle. And I came in just kind of um, downtrodden, flustered. I was a new mom at the time. And so, you know, just maybe kind of irritable. And of course I went back to the heater section and they were all sold out of heaters. Um, so I was already just, you know, kind of cranky and wishing that the day was going differently. So I made my way over to one of the cleaning aisles. It was the sponges and stuff. And all of a sudden this man 
just came booming towards me. So he was a Southern man and had a very jolly-like presence, almost like Santa, um, and just kind of a larger-than-life dynamic to him. And he said, Rhonda, calling out to his wife, you've got to come see the baby. Can we come see the, can we come look at the baby? And so I, his accent was very endearing. And he said, he has the most big, beautiful blue eyeballs. And and I just never really heard someone say that. And it just made me chuckle and kind of immediately shifted my mood, you know? <laughs> so then we chatted a little bit and he said at the end, God was good to you, darling. God was real good to you. And he said it with such passion. It just about knocked me over. I can't hardly explain it. It was just this amazing moment of human connection. It was so simple. And it was so strange, too, because then after I kind of got over being slightly awestruck from this man, I even went darting down a few aisles to get another look at them. And they were just like, poof, gone. Then as I came out and it was a bright, sunny day and like, I don't, I just like looked up to the sky, like, who's this man? And like, he just, he made me feel so good. And you remember how people make you feel. I, I know he was put right there for me that day, as crazy as that might seem or sound, but I, I just, I can feel it. In the blink of an eye like that, he really just changed my whole outlook of that day. He impacted my life, and so I just, I want to say thank you to him. He's, he's truly been an unsung hero to me. Betsy Cox of Simpsonville, South Carolina. To share the story of your unsung hero, you can send a voice memo to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for Unsung Hero comes from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. Former First Lady Michelle Obama is opening up in a new memoir about her life, her daughter's lives, the ebb and flow of her marriage, and much more. She talked about it with our co-host, Juana Summers, and she got candid about what it means to look like a person who supposedly has it all. I think it's a disservice when those of us who are out here modeling it aren't being real clear about the fact that we are not meant to do this life alone. More from Michelle Obama and her new book, The Light We Carry, Overcoming in Uncertain Times. That's tomorrow on All Things Considered. Listen on the air or try asking your smart speaker to play your local station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 
I'm Steve Brown, 41 degrees in Boston and a minute before 5. Coming up as all things continued, uh, con- all things considered continues, nearly a week after Election Day, voting and vote counting have gone smoothly so far despite widespread concerns of disruptions. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. You know, accepting election results, peaceful transitions of power, and it makes me feel hopeful for the first time in quite a while. Elections officials around the country are relieved that the midterms have included no major controversies. It's Monday, November 14th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. More on why the voting and vote counting has gone smoother than expected. Also ahead, the European Union refuses to give Poland COVID stimulus payments worth billions and is threatening to withhold more unless Poland reverses changes limiting the judiciary's independence. Fishermen in Fort Myers, Florida are working to recover the shrimp fishing industry after Hurricane Ian destroyed it. And Congress returns this week and is searching for a path forward as control of the House remains in limbo. It's 5.01. Now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. China's leader Xi Jinping and President Biden wrapped up more than three hours of talks in Indonesia today, the first time the two men have met since Biden became president. Both leaders expressed openness to resuscitating a relationship summer comparing to a second Cold War. More from NPR's Emily Fang. Xi and Biden agreed to set up clear lines of communication between them, despite the disagreements about how they think the world should be governed. But real sticking points remain, and one of the biggest issues continues to be Taiwan, a self-governed democratic island that China claims as its own and has threatened to invade. Biden said while the U.S. policy towards Taiwan has not changed, he condemned China's, quote, coercive and increasingly aggressive actions towards Taiwan. She pushed back, saying the island is, quote, the core of China's core interests and, quote, the first insurmountable red line in any relationship with the U.S. Emily Fang, NPR News, Nusa Dua, Indonesia. World leaders are entering a final week of negotiations in Egypt over the worsening climate crisis. NPR's Nathan Rott reports some key sticking points remain. Two of the main issues that remain unresolved as foreign ministers arrive in Egypt for the conference are how exactly countries will continue to strengthen efforts to cut climate warming emissions and perhaps most hotly contested the issue of loss and damage. Loss and damage meaning what rich countries who contributed the most to climate change, like the U.S., owe to smaller countries who've contributed far less and are being hard hit by climate change. Many technical issues need to be resolved on both issues, and negotiators and analysts here in Egypt are expressing skepticism that they'll be wrapped by Friday when the conference is officially scheduled to close. It is likely that negotiations will continue into the weekend. Nathan Robb, NPR News, Sharm El-Sheikh. 
Drugmaker Moderna says its new COVID-19 booster should help protect people against the Omicron variant of the virus. NPR's Rob Stein is the story. Moderna says company research shows the new booster stimulates the immune system to provide stronger antibody protection against Omicron than the original booster. The statement comes after Pfizer and BioNTech made similar claims about their Omicron booster. The claims by the companies contradict some independent research that has questioned whether the new boosters are better. And independent scientists say the companies haven't released enough information about their research to fully evaluate their claims. Nevertheless, health experts say the new boosters are at least as good as the older boosters and are urging people, especially those at high risk, to get boosted to protect themselves against COVID. Rob Stein, NPR News. Stocks wavered on Wall Street today before closing lower. The Dow down 211 points. The Nasdaq fell 127 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Tonight, voters in Falmouth will decide whether to approve an assault weapons bylaw. If it passes, then the new law would require the police department to destroy its surplus assault weapons rather than trade them in to a gun dealership for credit. Supporters of the measure say it will keep assault rifles from getting into the wrong hands. Opponents say it would eat into Falmouth Police Department's budget because the department would no longer be able to raise money by selling its assault weapons. There's a new memorial for 26 people killed at the Sandy Hook school shooting nearly 10 years ago in Connecticut. The new memorial opened in Newtown over the weekend. Six-year-old Catherine Violet Hubbard was one of those killed that day. Her mother, Jenny Hubbard, says the remembrance gives the town a place to put some of its grief. This was not an isolated event where you just move on with your we move on with your life. Our our community was impacted in the memorial. Um, I think is a really poignant reflection place for everybody um, to honor what we all lost. The memorial opened without any formal dedication ceremony. Fentanyl disguised in pills that look like Percocet, Xanax, or Adderall are killing teenagers and young adults in Massachusetts and across the country. 22-year-old Salem State University student Sam Chofi died after swallowing what he thought was a Percocet back in May. His mom, Sally Chofi, says if the pill wasn't prescribed to you, don't take it. You're playing Russian roulette because you're gonna, you could get a pill with fentanyl and you could die right away. Four of every 10 pills the Drug Enforcement Agency tests contains a lethal dose of fentanyl. The Handel and Haydn Society has a new leader. Jonathan Cohen has been named the 15th artistic director of the Boston-based orchestra and choral group. The award-winning conductor, cellist, and keyboardist is a native of Manchester, England. At 44 years old, he will be one of the youngest leaders in the society's 208-year history. In sports, the Celtics will host the Thunder tonight over at the Garden. The Bruins are off until Thursday when they'll take on the Flyers. In the forecast, it'll be clear and cool tonight. The lows around 30 degrees. Increasing clouds tomorrow. The highs around 44. Rain on Wednesday, mainly before 2 p.m. The highs will be around 50 degrees. Right now it's 41 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. 
Going into last week, a lot of people who run elections were concerned. They feared candidates would falsely claim victory. They feared lies about the election process would go viral online. And they feared possible violence and intimidation as the vote count continued. But so far, none of those fears have been realized. No violence, no false claims of victory. And even conspiracy theories haven't gotten much traction. And to find out why, we're joined now by NPR's Miles Parks and Shannon Bond. Hey to both of you. Hey there. Hi, okay, so how refreshing is it for there to be a good news story about the election? Miles, I want to start with you because you spend a lot of time talking to election officials. How good are they feeling about the midterms so far? They're feeling great. And specifically, when they look at the landscape of candidate concessions, I think it's really clear. You know, even people like Doug Mastriano, one of the most um, high-profile election deniers. He was running for governor in Pennsylvania. He conceded his race after he lost. I talked about that with Jocelyn Benson, who's the Democratic Secretary of State of Michigan. In her state, there were election deniers running up and down the ballot, including for governor and attorney general. And both those candidates conceded the day after the election. And when that happened, she actually got emotional. I got choked up a little bit because to me, that was like the affirmation that we did it. We actually ran a smooth election. There were folks who were ready, as we're seeing in other states, to, to, to pounce on anything. But it wasn't, it didn't work. Now, to be clear, not every candidate has conceded. Even Benson's opponent, the Secretary of State race, who lost by more than 600,000 votes, she has not conceded. But the conspiracies that she's been pushing about the election, they haven't stuck in the same way they did in 2020, for instance. Interesting. Okay, well, Shannon, you know, these conspiracy theories really haven't taken hold in the days since the election. And I know that you and Miles and Hua Jinnan have been reporting on this. What have you learned about why that is? Well, I think, you know, we, we know it's been two years for these conspiracy theories and this general feeling about election fraud to to build. But in those past two years, election officials, the media and social networks have also had time to prepare. And I think we've seen some of that pay off. Take Maricopa County in Arizona. It was the focus of some of the most viral fraud claims in 2020. And this time around, there were some issues on Election Day with ballot scanning machines that weren't working. But the county was quick to explain what was happening, to reassure voters their votes would be counted, and to push back on right-wing influencers who were trying to claim this was some kind of evidence that Republicans were going to be disenfranchised. And social media researchers we spoke to found overall these narratives around problems at the polls did not get the same kind of traction that we saw back in 2020. So why is that? Like we heard platforms pledge to make changes after 2020. Did that make a difference? I mean, make no mistake, Elsa, there are still a lot of rumors and baseless fraud accusations <laughs> sure. and conspiracy theories online. And you know, it hasn't gone away. But it's true. Mainstream platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, they've all expanded policies intended to curb the spread of election lies through things like fact checks, labeling. There have been mixed results on how successfully they're enforcing these. But I think the other dynamic here is that the social media landscape has change. There are these fringe platforms popular with the far right. They've siphoned off some of the more notorious spreaders of these claims. And I think the best example here is former President Donald Trump, right? He was banned from Facebook and Twitter. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have access to a big megaphone. He had more than 100 million followers on those platforms. These days, he's posting on his own site, Truth Social. Those posts, you know, reach about four and a half million people. They get screenshot and shared to mainstream platforms, but he does not seem to have the same reach as when he was posting directly on Twitter. 
Exactly. Well, Miles, in 2020, I mean, we saw aggressive protesters showing up at vote counting centers, demanding to be let in, sometimes making threats. Like, why are we not seeing that this year? What's your sense? I think there are a couple reasons. I mean, one is Trump. Trump was not on the ballot, and he is a very singularly motivating presence for a lot of these people. The other thing that I'm not sure we focused on enough as reporters covering this story is that the election officials, yes, have spent the last two years fighting misinformation, but they've also spent the last two years making new partnerships with law enforcement. And I think that part of this as a deterrence mechanism is something that I don't know that became clear until this election. You know, one of the the videos that has been um, kind of highest profile coming out of Maricopa County since voting happened last week was outside of the tabulation center. There were a couple protesters, Mm -hmm. but then you saw basically 10 police officers on horseback also patrolling the counting center. That kind of deterrence seems to have made a big difference here. Well, a question for both of you is, you know, given all that has happened, or maybe more importantly, what has not happened in the last week, what do you think? Will election lies continue to be a big problem over the next couple of years before the 2024 presidential election? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to, first of all, just look at the fact there are races that have not been called yet. I mean, there is still, people are still wary right now about what might happen over the next couple of weeks as we mm-hmm. wait for votes to be officially certified. And I also think it's important to recognize that there is a portion of the population on the right that are now where this is really hardened. You know, they're going into any election expecting fraud. And that does not seem to be going away. And so I think the question for our reporting is, are institutions and the broader voting public resilient enough to keep those kind of factors from eroding democratic systems? Yeah, it's definitely too early to claim victory for election officials. I talked recently with Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, who's the Democratic Secretary of State of New Mexico, and she says she's basically waiting for the other shoe to drop. But she's also acknowledging that, yes, this round seems to have gone really well. It's been really nice to have a return to what I consider, you know, the norms of our democracy, Uh, you know, accepting election results, peaceful transitions of power. And it makes me feel hopeful for, for the first time in quite a while. The last few years have been so hard on people who have been running American elections. Right now, they are letting themselves feel a little bit of hope. That is good news. That is NPR's Miles Parks and Shannon Bond. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. The right-wing party that governs Poland has chipped away at the country's judicial independence for years. Now the European Union is withholding the equivalent of around 15 percent of Poland's GDP over it. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports from Warsaw. When the people of Poland overthrew communism and started their democracy in 1989, they wanted a judicial branch independent from political influence. So they placed the power of selecting judges in the hands of other judges. But five years ago, Poland's ruling Law and Justice Party introduced a new law to do away with this system. It decreed politicians from the ruling party would instead select Poland's judges. And from then on, the Law and Justice Party has chosen judges who are loyal to their party. Judge Piotr Gonczarek calls these new politically appointed judges neo-judges. They now make up more than a fifth of Poland's judiciary, and he says the way they were appointed violates Poland's constitution. Gonczarek is one of dozens of Polish judges who refuse to adjudicate with neo-judges. Last year, I was selected to preside over a criminal case with one of these neo-judges, but I didn't consider that person a legal judge. On the day of the trial, I didn't show up. 
And for that, Goncharek was suspended. 40% of his salary gone. I've been a judge for 20 years. I presided over mob trials and homicides. There aren't many judges in Poland who have the skills to do that. I feel like the state is wasting my potential. And in the minds of many Poles, the state is also wasting potential money over this. The EU has refused to give Poland COVID stimulus funds worth around $35 billion and is now threatening to withhold $75 billion more in cohesion funds unless Poland's government reverses the changes it's made to the judiciary. The total potential hit is worth a fifth of Poland's GDP. It's huge. It, it means more than losing the Marshall Fund meant for communist Poland in 1950s. Jacek Kucharczyk is president of the Institute of Public Affairs, a think tank in Warsaw. He says Poland's government is behaving like former Soviet leader Joseph Stalin when he refused Marshall Plan funds to rebuild a devastated Poland after World War II. Kucharczyk says the ruling Law and Justice Party's leaders understand that reversing course would be a blow to their political power and are willing to hold Poland's future prosperity hostage in order to maintain that control. From our perspective, it's not a discussion of matters of law. The chairman of Poland's EU Affairs Committee, Kacper Płaczynski, insists most of the EU funds owed to Poland will be paid, but that some of the funding is being withheld not because of his party's changes to the judiciary, but because Poland's being bullied by the EU's more liberal states. It's more like discussion of political brutality in European Union and that just Polish current uh, government is more conservative than most of the others in European Union. Płaczynski insists judges in Poland are just as independent as judges in nearby Germany. The EU disagrees. And that's worrying many Poles, like Jadwiga Gadia Lushina, who lives outside Krakow. These EU funds have fueled so much development here. I work on cultural projects, and if these funds are cut, we would have to cancel educational workshops for children that teach them about environmental protection. A recent survey shows nearly two-thirds of Poles blame the current government for the EU's cuts in funding. Political analyst Kucharczyk says all of this could impact next year's election, when law and justice will be asking voters for four more years in power. In the previous elections, there was also a lot of criticism and a lot of people wanted them gone, but the economic situation was way better. They seemed in control and they had a sort of narrative which proved very effective. Now, he says, Poland suffers some of the worst inflation in Europe, tens of billions of dollars worth of funding is being withheld from the EU, and the Law and Justice Party doesn't look as strong. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Warsaw. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown, 40 degrees in Boston at 518. Ahead on All Things Considered, Hurricane Ian destroyed the shrimp fishing industry in Fort Myers, Florida. More than a month later, boats are still severely damaged and fishermen are desperate to get them back on the water. That's ahead here on WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. In business news, the Boston Planning and Development Agency is creating a guide for development of the life sciences industry in the city. The agency says its life sciences action agenda prioritizes the safety of residents while also providing transparency around how the BPDA coordinates life sciences development in urban areas of the city. The agency's chief of planning says development of the life sciences industry is critical to the city's economic health. On Wall Street, stocks closed a little bit lower. The Dow down six-tenths of a percent at 33,537. NASDAQ off 1.12% at 11,196. The S&P 500 down about nine-tenths of a percent at 39.57. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. WBUR's Last Seen podcast is back with new episodes, surprising new mysteries about people, places, and things that have gone missing. Follow Last Seen wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. When Hurricane Ian landed in Florida, one industry that was especially hard hit was shrimp fishing. For decades, it has been an important part of the economy in Fort Myers, integral to the region's culture and identity. And now, more than a month after the storm, it remains at a standstill. NPR's Danielle Kay met some shrimpers to hear what it's going to take to recover. Outside his flooded home, 85-year-old Jimmy Driggers says he got into the fishing business when he was 13 years old. He walks with a prosthetic leg from an injury he sustained on his boat about a decade ago. I was a mullet fisherman, commercial fisherman around Lee County and Charlotte County back in my younger days. Triggers owns one shrimping boat, the Miss Shirley, named after his wife. It can carry 50,000 pounds of shrimp. He says the industry has been hurting for decades and that he was paid more back in the 80s than he is today. And fuel prices have skyrocketed. You have to produce a lot of shrimp to stay afloat. And that's what we were doing for the last year, just staying afloat, not making enough to fix anything that broke. It was tough. Then came Ian. And the Miss Shirley was pushed partly onto a seawall, unusable. We thought about selling out, but I don't want to do that if we can hold on. If we can get the boat off and get it repaired and back in working order, there's going to be quite a lot to do. His home backs a water channel. It will have to be demolished. It got four inches of water, and he and his wife Shirley don't have flood insurance. The couple has been sleeping in a camper in their front lawn. They're hoping boat insurance will cover enough of the repairs to keep them in business, but they haven't been able to assess the damage yet. Right now, the shrimp industry needs help. 
desperately. Because oh, yeah. there's some boats that are not going to make it. They're too badly damaged. But they won't consider retiring. No, he's not going to leave the water. There's a smell when everything is natural. There's a smell here that is nowhere else. I've been to Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. But here, there's a smell to me. It's the smell of the water. Down at the Fort Myers Beach shrimp fishing docks, piles of boats are on the seawall and roads. A hydraulic excavator with shears tears a boat apart to haul to the landfill. We're standing in the parking lot, and the boats are up here. Uh, this is the Big Daddy. It's named after my husband, George. Christine Gala is the owner of Trico Shrimp Company, a fleet of 12 boats. None are insured. On the Fort Myers coast, only 45 boats are licensed to fish for shrimp. They mostly catch pink shrimp, a highly priced delicacy. All of the people that worked for us, whether they worked on the boats, in the fish house, in the market, even me, we no longer have a paycheck. We have no job except to call people and beg them to put our boat in the water. Gala is calling crane operators and state officials asking for help to get boats on the water. So far, only one boat has been moved, and it will likely take weeks, if not months, before it can set out to fish again. Its motor, generator, and freezer still have to be repaired. Gala is also looking for help to rebuild critical infrastructure. The docks are all gone. The building is gone. They've got a red sticker on it. They're going to knock it down completely. Shrimp fishing is a small but valuable industry in the country. It's valued at $37 million. Andrew Ropicki, who teaches marine resource economics at the University of Florida, says the industry has been struggling to compete with foreign imports since the 80s, but he's optimistic it can rebound from Ian. If federal and state agencies and others involved can look at it and see how important this is, you know, one of the last true working waterfronts that's in a very urbanized area, I am hopeful. I know there are people working on it and trying to help these folks. Over 75% of the pink shrimp harvested in the U.S. comes from the west coast of Florida. I ain't going nowhere. I'm going to stay here and help clean up. I love Fort Myers Beach. I've been here 35 years. 58-year-old Ricky Moran started shrimping with his dad when he was just nine years old and says he finds serenity in the water. We walk it between two boats, one sitting on the top of the other. At the docks, Moran leads us through the wreckage to the site where his boat landed. There's my boat. The Gallant. And as you can see, everything is laying right on top of it. The Gallant landed on its side, wedged between two other big boats, next to a severely damaged mobile home park. Folks have begun to clean up the devastation here. Moran not only lost his boat, but his home. He lived in the Gallant and rode out the storm on board. But right now, he wants to be on land. He's still haunted by memories of the storm. Unable to return to his boat, Moran is now living in a tent in the marina and applying to FEMA's unemployment plan. I took a love into this thing. I'm a commercial fisherman. I'm Captain Ricky. I could leave, go up the Mobile and get a boat, but I want to see this right here come back. For now, he's stuck in limbo, waiting, like dozens of others, to be back on a boat in the industry that provides not just his home, but also his way of life. Danielle Kay, NPR News, Fort Myers. And NPR's Marisa Peñaloza produced this report.
Jane Gross followed in her father's footsteps when she became a sports writer right up to the locker room door. Gross was covering the New York Knicks in 1975 when she became the first female reporter to get access to the locker room of a pro basketball team. Female reporters usually had to wait in the hall. Having access to the locker room is a big deal because that's where the real stories are told. Women who were left outside the locker room typically just had to catch someone as they were walking toward a bus or a car. And you would get very dismissive, quick answers and none of the insight that people tend to share when they have more time. That's Ileana Limon Romero, sports editor at the LA Times and president of the Association of Women in Sports Media. But being first had a downside. Throughout Gross's career, male athletes harassed her. She had to endure sexist phone calls, voicemails, emails. She had a bucket of ice water thrown on her. She had spaghetti and meatballs poured on her head. But Gross's efforts to increase women's access to players inspired a whole generation, says Limon Romero. I really feel like I stand on the shoulders of Jane Gross and so many other women who were of her era. I don't think my job is possible without her. I am the first uh, woman to serve as a sports editor at the Los Angeles Times. Gross spent most of her career at the New York Times, where she wrote about subjects ranging from the AIDS crisis to abortion to Alzheimer's disease. When her mother's health began to fail, Gross pivoted to report on aging. She wrote about the difficulties of navigating the financial realities of -of end-of-life care and the emotional aspects of caring for a dying parent. Back in 2012, Gross talked with NPR about how her mother's slow decline in health changed their relationship. I had a very difficult relationship with my mother, which, because of how long this lasted and because of how hard both of us worked at the relational part of it, we had a completely different relationship by the time she died. And it's those memories and sort of that mother that I take away with me. Here's her advice for anyone going through a similar experience. Be the son, be the daughter, get as much out of the time as you can. Give them as much pleasure. Give yourself as much opportunity to store up good memories because it's going to end the same way regardless. Jane Gross died on Wednesday at the age of 75. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 40 degrees in Boston at 529. Ahead on All Things Considered, Congress returns this week with party leaders facing uncertainty over who will control the House next year and unfinished business this year. That's ahead here on WBUR. And tomorrow afternoon on 90.9 WBUR, NPR sits down with Michelle Obama to talk about the former First Lady's new book, an extended conversation with Michelle Obama when you listen to All Things Considered tomorrow at 420 on 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, clear and cool tonight. The lows will be around 30 degrees. Increasing clouds tomorrow. The highs around 44. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig. Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. There's a lot of reasons and evidence that remote learning was harmful for kids. It is complicated, and there are a lot of other factors at play. 
besides just the status of remote learning. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. President Biden is in Indonesia to attend the G20 summit. He met earlier with China's president on the summit sidelines. Biden also spoke about last week's elections. He says he does not think there will be enough votes in the next Congress to pass laws that protect abortion rights. Abortion rights groups in Kentucky are poised for arguments tomorrow at the state's Supreme Court. Reproductive rights groups are challenging two abortion bans that took effect this summer. NPR's Sarah McCammon reports the challenges come after Kentucky voters declined to limit abortion rights in the state constitution. Kentucky voters last week rejected Amendment 2, which would have said the state constitution contains no protections for abortion rights. Tamara Weeder, Planned Parenthood's Kentucky state director, says she's hopeful that win will bolster their case before Kentucky's Supreme Court. Now that the Constitution of Kentucky is not going to be changed, we have a legal pathway forward. Our Constitution has strong privacy protections, and we believe that it affirms the right to abortion and reproductive health. Kentucky was one of several states where voters signaled support for abortion rights in last week's election. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Washington. Ukrainian troops are in the eastern city of Kherson. NPR's Jason Bobian reports they took control after Russian forces withdrew from the city last week. A huge crowd has gathered in the center of Kherson to celebrate the end of eight months of Russian occupation. Even President Vladimir Zelensky made a surprise visit here to the square. He was greeted with chants of his name and, and people waving yellow and blue flags. NPR's Jason Bobian in Kherson. Large parts of eastern and southern Ukraine are still under Russian control. On Wall Street today, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed down 211 points at 33,536. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. NPR's senior vice president of news has been named the next editor of the Boston Globe. Nancy Barnes announced that she would be leaving NPR back in September after NPR's CEO created a new executive role above her. Globe CEO Linda Henry says Barnes brings leadership experience as a newspaper editor and transitioned to running a digital and audio newsroom that has been an industry leader. The Cambridge native begins on February 1st. She succeeds Brian McGrory, who will become chair of the journalism department at Boston University. Tonight, voters in Falmouth will decide whether the police department should destroy its surplus assault weapons rather than sell them to a gun dealership. WBUR's Josie Garino talked with the woman behind the petition. Deborah Warner says it did not take a lot of time to get the 300 signatures needed to get the proposal added to the town meeting agenda. She says the point of the proposed bylaw is to prevent assault weapons from getting into the wrong hands. The retired Episcopal priest says she took action after the Uvalde school shooting in May that left 21 students and teachers dead. There's a feeling of helplessness when one hears about that and what can I do? And it was after the shooting at Uvalde that I... I just, I thought this is crazy. Warner is optimistic voters will approve the law, even though the police department has signed a contract with a local gun dealership to trade them in for credit. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. Provincetown voters have approved a $75 million sewer expansion and modernization project. Back in August, the town ordered many restaurants and businesses shut down when part of its vacuum sewer system became overwhelmed following heavy rainfall. The average price of gasoline in Massachusetts has risen to $3.86 a gallon. AAA Northeast says that's 26 cents a gallon more than it was a month ago. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. It'll be clear and cool tonight. The lows around 30 degrees, increasing clouds tomorrow. The highs around 44 Rain on Wednesday, mainly before 2 p.m., the highs around 50 degrees. Right now it's 40 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Congress is back this week for what's shaping up to be a busy, lame duck session. Democrats in the Senate are breathing a sigh of relief after retaining control of that chamber. Here's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. The American people stepped back from the precipice and chose progress and getting things done rather than the voices of divisiveness, nastiness, and lack of complete truth and honor. But it is still unclear where things stand for the House, where control still remains in limbo. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales joins us now with more. Hey, Claudia. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so even with the Georgia Senate race in a runoff in December, we already know now that Democrats will be going into the next Congress with control of the Senate. Do we know what's going to be on their agenda? Right. We're getting some hints. And you raise a good point about the Georgia Senate race. This is between Democrat Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker. That is a critical one, even after Democrats are going to control the Senate chambers they learned this weekend after their win in the Nevada Senate race. But now they're going to move forward with their lame duck session plans and their plans for a new Congress next year. Schumer pleaded for Republicans to work with Democrats in the new Congress. That could include judicial nominees and bipartisan legislation. But this is going to be a harder task if the House falls under Republican control. Exactly. Okay. so what about the House? Like, where do things stand there at this moment? Yes, a lot of critical races remain outstanding, so it can't be called yet. We don't know for certain if Republicans will take control control, but the odds are in their favor. It could be by a very thin margin and upend all sorts of plans for Republicans who are expecting a red wave. Yeah. So then what does this mean for House Republicans who I understand are going to be holding their internal leadership elections tomorrow? Right. There's a lot in limbo here. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy was the presumptive speaker if the GOP saw Mm -hmm. a red wave, but without it, there's a much more turbulent road ahead. Members such as Texas Republican Chip Roy have said McCarthy does not have the majority of the chamber 
chamber to be speaker, to be elected speaker. Hmm. And so now he's part of a GOP group pushing for a delay in leadership elections. Yeah, I would I would argue that it'd be better for us to at least have the final tallies uh, completed, I think, in the Senate and the House. I think that would be a better way to do things. So tomorrow, McCarthy only needs to get a majority of his conference to vote for him behind closed doors, but he's going to need a majority on the House floor come next year. It's unclear if he'll get that. There are Republican House members who are considering a challenge here. Okay, well, Congress, as you said, is back today. What do you think all of this means for the lame duck session through the rest of the year? Right. It's going to be busy, maybe chaotic, especially if Democrats lose the House next year. That means they're on notice to get critical legislation through that may not be possible come next year. This includes government funding, a defense bill, reforms the Electoral Count Act, and wrapping up the work of the January 6th committee. So it's quite a sprint for both chambers as they head into a new Congress next year. That is NPR's Claudia Grisales. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you much. Food has become more expensive all over the world. In East Africa, that's led to extreme hunger. Nearly half of Somalia's population faces acute food insecurity. That's more than 7 million people, one and a half million of them children, according to the World Food Program. Rania Dagesh Kamara is UNICEF's Deputy Regional Director for Eastern and Southern Africa, and she's with us from Nairobi. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Ari, and thank you for the opportunity. When you visit Somalia, what does this crisis look like? It looks different to most crises that I've seen in the last um, 22 years in the region. It is the front lines of climate change. It is five failed rain seasons, which we've never seen in this part of the world, and a potential sixth one actually likely to fail. So people have lost millions of livestock. They've lost all their crop. They have lost all their assets, basically, and they're on the move looking for assistance to survive. And if I could zoom out a little bit, Ari, in the Horn of Africa in total, the numbers have been escalating. We're at close to 15 million children affected at this point, and that's over 30 million people. Are there people you've met in your visits to Somalia who you can tell us about, people you remember who put some individuality on this massive uh, tragedy. There is a mother um, that I met who was pregnant and she also had uh, one-year-old twin boys, one sitting on her lap, one trying to breastfeed. They had walked 120 kilometers to get to our assistance and they did. They were lucky. The child on her breast was crying because there was nothing coming out of her breast and he was trying so desperately. The other one was totally lethargic and unable to move. His stare was blank. And that was one of the saddest things. She herself was malnourished and her children were malnourished and she was pregnant. And many mothers we spoke to had the same story. She didn't lose any children, but many others lost kids on the way. So it's been a very difficult um, drought, a very difficult crisis. And one that I honestly struggle with, and I struggled with it as a mother. I struggled with it as an aid worker. I struggled with it as just a woman from the Horn of Africa. I I struggled with it at so many levels and still am. The militant group Al-Shabaab holds a lot of territory in Somalia. Is that a challenge to distributing food aid to the people who need it most? It is and it isn't. It is in that the areas that a Shabaab control are difficult to access. But... Different to many contexts um, and and routes that we'd seen before, people have been coming out of the Shabab areas and seeking assistance in nearby towns. 
which tells you that the situation is extremely dire inside the locations controlled by Shabab. And so we are seeing um, a pull factor by the assistance that we're setting up in the towns to reach more people. And I think the larger numbers are actually outside the Shabab areas, and that's where the bulk of our support is, is targeted to, and the bulk of our presence is. What role does the war in Ukraine play in this situation? It plays many roles in this crisis. It took away visibility that we would have probably gotten a lot stronger in February and the months that followed and ensued. It took away resources that we would have gotten to the Horn of Africa drought and affected children much earlier. And we've seen even some of our key donors redirecting their assistance that they would have extended to us to respond to the Ukraine crisis in their own countries. We've never seen that before. And it increased the food and fuel prices in a way that even those in, in Somalia and in other countries could have buffered and helped their communities. But when they can't feed themselves, they can't extend to feed others or to support others. So the war on Ukraine has been a multifaceted disaster on a disaster already. With year after year of failed rainy seasons, is there any hope that things will turn around? Oh, absolutely, Ari. Our data is being analyzed at the moment, and we do know that there's a slight improvement in Somalia. We know that the crisis continues to outpace our ability to respond. It is dire. It is like nothing we've seen before. But our presence is making a difference. The communities and the local partners that are working are making a difference, and they're saving children every day. Rania Degesh Kamara is UNICEF's Deputy Regional Director for Eastern and Southern Africa. Thank you for talking with us. Thank you, Ari. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Morale has proven to be a critical issue for Russia as it aims to take and hold territory in Ukraine. Estimates of Russian troop casualties number in the thousands. And now mobilized Russian reservists are being sent to the front lines. NPR's Nathan Rott reports on a Ukrainian effort to get Russians to lay down their arms. The phone calls often sound like this. A Russian man, a soldier, calling from the Kherson region, saying he wants to surrender. The woman on the phone line, working for Ukraine's Ministry of Defense, asks whether he's been conscripted or if he's part of the Russian military. Yes, he says, I have been conscripted already. Soon I will be sent to Kherson, a city that Ukraine has since retook. This digitally altered recording and others provided to NPR by Ukraine's Ministry of Defense, which NPR was not able to independently verify, are part of a program launched by Ukraine earlier this fall. We started our project with a telegram channel, I want to live. Petro Yatsenko is a spokesperson for Ukraine's coordination headquarters for treatment of prisoners of war. We have two main aims. First of all, to um, decrease the number of uh, Russian soldiers. Second, he says, acknowledging this is Ukrainian propaganda, is to give Russian men an opportunity to return home without being killed. And maybe some, then, after that, they'll understand 
what to do with their power, with their authority, because in case they will not, it will continue. It being the war. Yatsenko says thousands of Russians have called their hotline or used the I Want to Live chatbot, the program made on Telegram. And he says those numbers surged, causing their program to expand after Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a partial mobilization of Russian civilians for the campaign. 87,000 of whom, Russia's defense ministry says, are believed to already be fighting in Ukraine. But more than 100,000 Russian men have also popped up in the Middle East and Asia. They say, I don't want to kill somebody. I don't want to go to the front line. I want to surrender just immediately. The process is complicated. Yatsenko says they instruct Russian soldiers to call the hotline when they reach a frontline area in Ukraine. They're promised that they'll be treated as if they surrendered during a fight, grouped in with others who did fight and surrendered. They'll be held as prisoners of war and could be exchanged for Ukrainian POWs. And the Ukrainian Defense Ministry says they could be given the option of eventually staying in Ukraine. But there's a lot of distrust. Oksana, who takes some of these calls and won't use her real name for security reasons, says many Russians worried the hotline is a trap set up by Russian intelligence. Has doing this changed your perspective on the war at all? We have only one attitude to the war, she says. We wish it didn't exist. We want peace. But then she continues. Honestly, sometimes I feel sorry for them, she says. Sometimes you realize that people are so blind and brainwashed by propaganda, you start to sympathize or something. This is one of the ways to reach peace, she says, because if we have these feelings of hatred and hostility, it will only inflame more. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Kyiv, Ukraine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 40 degrees in Boston at 548. Ahead on All Things Considered, tribes in the Pacific Northwest say a law that protects seals and sea lions undermines their fishing rights. That's just ahead here on WBUR. Your mobile phone is a radio on the go. Listen on the WBUR mobile app wherever you are and stay informed about all the day's news. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the British International School of Boston. Thinking beyond traditional education, collaborating with MIT and Juilliard. Open house November 20th. Register at bisboston.org. And the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. In the forecast, it'll be clear and cool tonight. The lows around 30 degrees. Increasing clouds tomorrow. The highs will be around 44. We should get some rain on Wednesday, mainly before 2 o'clock in the afternoon. The highs will be around 50 degrees. And it should be mostly sunny on Thursday and Friday. The highs around 45. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Beacon Hill Books and Cafe, with programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th century townhouse in the heart of historic Beacon Hill, now open at 71 Charles Street. Take a moment to ask yourself, are you well-rested? 
I'm not going to tell you what my answer is, but you can probably guess because maybe you feel the same way. In a world where we emphasize productivity and celebrate busyness, is constant fatigue inevitable? Or can we learn and practice meaningful rest? That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Tribes in the Pacific Northwest say a law that protects seals and sea lions undermines their fishing rights. They want a new strategy that would better manage the marine mammals eating their salmon. From member station KNKX, Bellamy Palethorpe reports. On the Nisqually River Delta near Olympia, Washington, you can see the effects of the Marine Mammal Protection Act playing out. Hopefully we didn't scare him, but there's about 200 sitting right there. Willie Frank III maneuvers his boat to the mouth of the river, where hundreds of harbor seals have been sunning themselves on the banks. Yep, see, there they go. They're scooting. Frank is chairman of the Nisqually Indian tribe. He's the son of the late Billy Frank Jr., who led the fishing protests in the 1960s and 70s that secured tribal treaty fishing rights here. But he says those rights are threatened by growing numbers of hungry seals. When the tide comes in, the seals follow the fish upriver for miles. I mean, these are areas where they never used to come. They wouldn't come up to the I-5 bridge, but now they go well past that. And he says when fishermen are out on the water, the seals head straight for their nets. They'll get in our net, they'll eat, you know, take bites out of the fish. Frank says the sea lions are worse. They're huge. Hundreds of them come to the Nisqually River every year and hit the fishermen's boats going after their salmon. I think the ecosystem's out of balance. You know, I've been fishing for 20 years and I'm seeing it every day, the lack of salmon coming back to the river. I mean, we used to catch two, 300 fish Sunday and Monday during king season. We're lucky to catch 100 fish now the whole season. This year is the 50th anniversary of the Marine Mammal Protection Act. The Northwest Indian Fisheries Commission, which represents more than 20 tribes, is calling seals and sea lions invasive species allowed to go out of control under this law. It is very restrictive and it protects all marine mammals in the United States. Chris Yates is Assistant Regional Administrator with NOAA Fisheries, the federal agency that oversees protected species management under this law. That was what it was intended to do 50 years ago. Like we said, it's been largely successful at seeing significant rebounds in marine mammal populations. And it's not just seals and sea lions that have bounced back. Gray whales and humpbacks have also recovered from overhunting thanks to this law. Yates says the agency is aware of the problem of seals and sea lions preying on endangered salmon. On parts of the Columbia River, wildlife officials are now allowed to kill sea lions. But in Puget Sound, federal and state agencies are still studying the scope of the problem, not just for tribes, but also for endangered southern resident killer whales that are suffering because of dwindling king salmon. But Yates says the law requires the regulators to maintain marine mammal species at the maximum number that the ecosystem can support. What these protective acts regulate is human activity. They regulate the taking of those animals. They don't regulate the animals taking each other. We used to trade them, harvest them, eat them, sell their meat. Puyallup elder and former tribal chairwoman Ramona Bennett sits outside her home near the Puyallup River. She wants tribes to start hunting seals and sea lions again and says they should throw a big public feast, even though that would be illegal. 
let them arrest us will never result this through legislation. It'll have to be through litigation, which is clearer and quicker. Bennett's frustration is that a celebrated federal law is sacrificing tribal culture to protect now abundant seals and sea lions. For NPR News, I'm Bellamy Palethorpe in Olympia, Washington. The idea of needing to belong to something can be overrated as far as Sean Tan is concerned. Tan is an artist and writer whose work has earned a cult following. He's best known for his graphic novel, The Arrival, and the Academy Award-winning short film, The Lost Thing. NPR's Elizabeth Blair spoke with Tan about his new book, Creature, a collection of his art that spans nearly 25 years. Sean Tan's creatures are made of a little bit of everything, stuff from nature and your kitchen, a toaster with horns, a bird-like beast with one eye, a mechanical-looking bug towing a giant strawberry. Some of them are fierce, but a lot of them are playful and cuddly. I've always been interested in the strange creature as a companion, not as an adversary or antagonist or a threat or, or something even scary and mysterious but as the person sitting next to you. In Sean Tan's graphic novel, The Lost Thing, a boy walks on a beach collecting bottle caps. He sees a huge red creature, like a metal pot with crab claws. Nobody else seems to even notice it, but the boy is curious. It turned out to be really friendly and I played with the thing for most of the afternoon. The book was turned into a short film narrated by Australian actor Tim Minchpin. As the hours slouched by, it seemed less and less likely that anyone was coming to take the thing home. Soon there was no denying the unhappy truth. It was lost. The boy tries to help the lost thing find its home. The question for me was always, why is he engaging with this creature? Why is he so worried about where it belongs? And where does that question of belonging lead him? I decided to hide the thing in our back shed, at least until I could figure out what to do next. I mean, I couldn't just leave it wandering the streets. Tan's new collection includes a lot of the original sketches from The Lost Thing. It was his first book. At the time, he was a freelance illustrator, but wanted to do his own work. It kind of tapped into something I was feeling at the time in my mid-twenties, a sense of wanting to be creative but not quite sure where I belonged and what the meaning of my work was. And the story ended up being about all those things, about what do you do with meaningless work and is that okay? And I've, I've come to realise it is okay. <laughs> I've made a career out of it. Tan doesn't think his creatures are meaningless anymore, just the opposite. He says he's figured out something serious to say with them. Eventually, the boy in The Lost Thing understands that the creature might not belong anywhere, and that's okay. When someone says that in order to belong, you need to be this sort of thing or you need to fulfill these certain requirements, well, it's, it's going down a very bad road, and you see that happening all over the world, and it also is the basis for a lot of needless disagreement between people. Tan's graphic novel, The Arrival, is also about belonging and dislocation. It follows a man emigrating to a country that has both humans and creatures. I'm interested in what you do when you encounter something that's really, really strange and unfamiliar, and how we respond to that, whether it's with fear of evasion or curiosity and maybe even love is, is really 
quite telling. Sean Tan's new collection is called Creature, Paintings, Drawings, and Reflections. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Universal Pictures with She Said, starring Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan as the New York Times journalists whose investigation helped ignite a movement based on actual events. Only in theaters November 18th. Rated R. And from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at YourPartTimeController.com. This is 90.9 WBURN, WBUR.org, just a minute before 6 o'clock. Just ahead on All Things Considered, President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping sat down for their first in-person meeting in a long time. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. Opening November 25th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We had an open and candid conversation about our intentions and our priorities. It was clear. He was clear and I was clear. President Biden spoke with reporters today after meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. It's Monday, November 14th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. We'll explain what the two presidents talked about and how it went. Also ahead, clinics that care for long COVID patients are wrestling with how to handle a condition that is still poorly understood and has no widely accepted treatments. We remember the man who lived at the Paris airport for 18 years and was the inspiration for Steven Spielberg's movie, The Terminal. And we'll hear from a woman who insists that Africans need to stay in Senegal to build Africa's future. Marketplace comes up at 6.30 with all the day's business news. It's 6.01, first this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Control of the House has yet to be decided, though NPR's Domenica Montanaro reports Republicans remain on track to gain a slim majority. It may still be a few days before we officially know which party will be in charge of the House because there are millions of uncounted ballots in California and lots of close races. At this point, Republicans need to pick up six more seats for a majority. Democrats need to pick up 14 of the remaining 19 races to hold 
hold on to the chamber. If Republicans do pick up the House, though, legislating won't be easy for the incoming speaker. The steadfast conservative faction among the GOP conference will likely have steep demands and make it difficult to pass legislation, and it would be almost certainly far too conservative to pass what will continue to be a Democratic-controlled Senate. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. The U.S. Supreme Court is refusing to block a January 6th committee subpoena for the phone records of Kelly Ward, the chair of the Arizona Republican Party and an ally of Donald Trump. NPR's Anita Totenberg has the story. The court issued no opinion, instead simply denying Ward's attempt to block the subpoena. The vote was 7-2, to with Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito noting their dissent. Ward, an election denier, played a role in the so-called fake elector scheme in Arizona following the 2020 election. The subpoena is of particular interest because Ginny Thomas, the wife of Justice Thomas, emailed 29 Arizona lawmakers during that period, urging them to choose a different slate of electors than those pledged to Biden. It's not known whether Ginny Thomas was in communication with Ward, but Justice Thomas did not recuse himself from the case, nor has he recused himself from any case involving the January 6th investigation. Nina Totberg, NPR News, Washington. President Volodymyr Zelensky made an unannounced visit to Kherson to mark Ukraine's retaking of the key southern city. NPR's Greg Myrie reports the Ukrainian president received a rousing welcome as he spoke to residents who endured eight months of Russia's occupation. The crowd in Kherson cheered as Zelensky told them, quote, We are, step by step, coming to all of our country. Zelensky has visited frontline areas throughout the war but usually on secret trips announced only after he'd come and gone. This time, he appeared openly on the streets, speaking and waving to residents as Ukraine celebrates one of its biggest victories of the war. The city is lacking most all basic necessities, and Russian troops are only a short distance away, having retreated across the Dnipro River. In contrast, Russian President Vladimir Putin has not spoken about Kherson since the Russian troops recently fled. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kiev. Stocks lost ground to start the new trading week. The Dow was down 211 points. The Nasdaq fell 127 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Google has agreed to pay more than $390 million to Massachusetts and 39 other states over how the company tracked users' locations. Massachusetts is expected to get about $9.3 million from the settlement. State attorneys general claim Google continued to collect personal information even after consumers opted out of being tracked by the company. The AGs call the agreement the largest multi-state privacy settlement in U.S. history. The head of the state's Republican Party is vowing the state GOP will live on to fight another day. A letter to supporters comes less than a week after the party lost every statewide race, as well as several down-ballot contests in districts that had long been represented by Republicans. Chairman Jim Lyons wrote party leadership remains committed to the recalibration of the Massachusetts Republican Party towards representing the working and middle classes. Some party officials are looking to oust Lyons after last week's dismal results. State regulators are signaling that they will push to limit how much sports betting-related advertising people in Massachusetts will see. Massachusetts Gaming Commissioner Eileen O'Brien grilled a panel of broadcasters and sports league representatives on the topic at a meeting today. Sean McGrail of Nesson says regulators should expect sports books to market themselves aggressively. Boston's a big city, and then when you see 
bus boards and and uh, outdoor and uh, you know there's there's a lot of probably unfettered uh, advertising mediums that that uh, beyond sports franchises and broadcast and I mean they're going to take a lot of this as well too. The sport, state sports betting program is scheduled to open up early next year. A Quincy man is locked up after being accused of rape and kidnapping a woman from the Wollaston MBTA station. A Norfolk district attorney spokesman says 26-year-old Christian Lynch allegedly, uh, allegedly attacked the woman on her way to work on Saturday. Prosecutors claim Lynch drove the woman to an undisclosed location where he allegedly subjected her to hours of sexual abuse before dropping her off at a mall in Brockton 11 hours later. The suspect has pleaded not guilty. Andover native and former Tonight Show host Jay Leno is hospitalized with burns in California. Several media outlets report that there was a fire in the garage where he stores his car collection. Variety reports that Leno told the publication he had some serious burns from a gasoline fire and needs a week or two to get back on his feet. In the forecast, clear and cool tonight. The lows will be around 30 degrees. Increasing clouds tomorrow, the high around 44. Right now it's 40 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington in a hotel ballroom in Bali, Indonesia today. The leaders of two superpowers sat down to talk. President Biden and President Xi Jinping of China. They had a whole slate of difficult issues between their countries to work through. Relations have been fraught. But Biden told reporters this meeting today helped open up lines of communication. We're not going to be able to work everything out. I'm not suggesting it's going to, this is kumbaya. You know, everybody is going to go away with everything in agreement. But I do not believe there's a need for concern of a as one of you raised the legitimate question, a new Cold War. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez was there in Bali. He joins us now. Hey, Franco. Hey, Mary Louise. So I know President Xi and President Biden have spoken several times since Biden took over as president, but this was their first face-to-face meeting in a in a long time, right? What was it like inside the room? I mean, there was a lot of energy from the staff all the way to the leaders. And the leaders, they were smiling and they looked happy to see each other as they shook hands. You know, they walked into a large ballroom together and sat down across from each other at these long tables. And the tables were probably spaced about 12 feet apart, each flanked by their top advisors. And both of them said that they wanted to find ways to address their differences. Here's President Xi speaking through a translator. In our meeting today, I'm ready to have a candid, as we always did, have a candid and in-depth exchange of views with you on issues of strategic importance in China-U.S. relations and on major global and regional issues. Now, the meeting lasted for about three hours. There were no big breakthroughs or joint statements afterward. And the White House has said ahead of the meeting that they weren't expecting that. But, you know, they did agree to keep talking, and Secretary of State Antony Blinken will travel to China to follow up. Okay, so they agreed to keep talking. I suppose one of the thorniest issues they they need to talk about is the status of Taiwan, which China claims, claims the self-governed island as its own. President Biden has said in the past that he is prepared to defend Taiwan if it comes to that. What did he have to say on that today? 
Well, Biden told reporters that the two leaders had an, quote, open and candid conversation about their intentions and priorities. And he said he wants to see issues resolved peacefully. And he does think that can be done. I do not think there's any imminent attempt on the part of China to invade Taiwan. And I uh, made it clear that our policy in Taiwan has not changed at all. But there is concern, Mary Louise, in China about what Biden has said in the past about defending Taiwan. And after the meeting today, a spokeswoman for the Chinese government said that, quote, instead of talking in one way and acting in another, the United States needs to honor its commitments with concrete action. Franco, what about Russia? Did Russia come up? Did they talk about the war in Ukraine? Yeah, the White House says that Biden brought up the war. Officials say they agreed that they were both opposed to the, quote, use or threat of use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And this is important because China has maintained a working relationship with Russia during this conflict. So Beijing is indicating its disapproval of past comments Russian President Vladimir Putin has made about nuclear weapons. Biden has also said he talked to Xi about North Korea's nuclear tests. And he warned that the U.S. would need to take more defensive actions if there are more nuclear tests. Biden said he wants Xi to make it clear to North Korea that they should not engage in long-range nuclear tests. That is NPR's Franco Ordonez reporting today from Bali. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mary Louise. We have known about long COVID since the early months of the pandemic, and specialty long COVID clinics have popped up all over the country. But there is still a lack of evidence for how to treat it. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN in Nashville reports that getting better still involves trial and error and a lot of patience. I still have all of that kind of stuff. Medical um, equipment is still strewn around the house, even though Rick Lucas has been home from the hospital nearly two years. He picks up a spirometer, which measures his lung capacity, and takes a deep breath, though not as deep as he'd like. See, I've been sitting around not walking around today, so my lungs are not expanded. But he's come a long way. In the summer of 2020, Lucas went into the hospital near his home in Hendersonville, Tennessee. Pretty soon he was transferred to a COVID unit in Nashville and put on a ventilator. He didn't come home for five months. And when he did, his wife Cindy had to do everything. It wasn't clear what ailments were just from being on a vent so long and what was from this new mysterious condition called long COVID. I had no doubt that I was going to be back to normal. In fact, I was wanting to go to work, oh, what, no. four months after I got home? I said, well, you know what? Just get up and go. You can't drive. You can't walk. But hey, let's go in for an interview. It Tell me how that works. It was two weeks after I got home from the hospital that I went back to work. He's been taking short-term assignments this year in his old field as a nursing home administrator, but he's still on partial disability. It's estimated that there have been millions of Americans with long COVID symptoms, and each experience is unique. For some, the lingering symptoms are worse than the initial sickness. Others, like Lucas, were on death's door and have just had more of a roller coaster of recovery than you'd expect. Lucas had the brain fog, fatigue, depression. He'd start getting energy back, then go try some light yard work and end up in the hospital with pneumonia. And there's really no telling why some are shaking the symptoms after a few years and others aren't getting better, says Dr. Stephen Deeks. There's absolutely nothing anywhere that's clear about long COVID. We have a guess at how frequently it happens, but right now we're really, everyone's in a data-free zone. Deeks is an infectious disease specialist at the University of California, San Francisco. Researchers are still trying to establish the underlying cause. Theories include inflammation, autoimmunity, even bits of the virus left in the body. 
Deke says there need to be big national sites where researchers can work together on promising treatments. There are specialized COVID clinics established by dozens of big medical centers casting a wide net for cures. And I'm following this stuff on social media, looking for a home run. Patients, especially those who were perfectly healthy pre-COVID, are desperate and willing to try anything. But there's some tension building in the medical community on this grab bag approach. Dr. Kristen England says a bunch of one-patient experiments could muddy the waters for research. She oversees more than 2,000 long COVID patients at the Cleveland Clinic. I'd rather not just kind of one-off try things with people because we really do need to get more data and evidence-based data. So that means we need to try and put things in some sort of a protocol moving forward. It's not that she doesn't get the urgency. She's experienced her own long COVID symptoms. She felt terrible for months after getting COVID in 2020. Literally taking naps on the floor in my office uh, in the afternoon. So she says the biggest job of these long COVID clinics is still to validate patients and give them some hope. She tries to stick with proven therapies. So when they have symptoms like where they get dizzy and their heart races when they stand up, that she can treat. Otherwise, there's a lot of focus on diet, exercise, and mindfulness. But other doctors are throwing all sorts of things at the wall. At the Lucas House in Tennessee, the kitchen counter can barely contain all the pill bottles. This is the one Mementon that was for memory. We discovered his memory was worse. But other pills seem to help. Cindy Lucas suggested testosterone, and their doctor gave it a shot. He said, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but I bet that would work. And it did. We saw a huge improvement in his energy. That doctor was Stephen Heyman, who leads the long COVID clinic at Ascension St. Thomas. People like myself are getting a little bit out of over my skis trying to look for things that I can try. Heyman's also right there struggling through long COVID. He thought he was past the memory lapses and breathing trouble, then caught COVID a second time and feels more fatigued than ever. He's looking at medications used for addiction and cholesterol, and he's decided he may just have to be a guinea pig himself. Uh, directly, I'm going to have to do use my expertise to try and find out why I don't feel well. Heyman says he doesn't have years to waste waiting for a proven long COVID cure. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. This story comes from NPR's partnership with Nashville Public Radio and Kaiser Health News. He may have been the world's most famous homeless person. Merhan Karimi Nasseri was an Iranian national who lived at Paris's Charles de Gaulle Airport for 18 years. He died over the weekend at the age of 77. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley has his story. For a man who never reached his final destination, he inspired a lot of art. An opera, a book, and two movies, including Steven Spielberg's 2004 film The Terminal, starring Tom Hanks. We headed for home? Uh, no, I am delayed a long time. But the real life of Merhan Karimi Nasseri was not as happy as the Hollywood version. Nasseri was born in 1945 from a brief liaison between an Iranian father and a British mother who never acknowledged him. At the age of 43, he left for Britain to try to find her. But after Iranian officials stripped him of his passport and he had no other identity papers, he was unable to stay in Britain. He was expelled from Belgium, the Netherlands, and Germany, too. But in 1988, France allowed Nasseri to stay as long as he remained in the airport. 
Here he is speaking in 1999. I think nobody can live uh, 11 years in such a situation. I am unique immigration case. Nasseri became a well-known figure. Airport workers fondly called him Sir Alfred. Surrounded by his possessions on an airport couch, he did interviews with the media and received mail from passengers hoping to meet him on a layover. He was treated by airport doctor Philippe Bargain. Very quickly, he had a network of people around him who liked him and helped him, said Bargain. He was the first citizen of Charles de Gaulle Airport. Despite eventually getting refugee status in France, Nasseri never wanted to leave the airport. He was finally forced to in 2006 to be hospitalized. He lived on the outside for several years in a hostel. But in September, Nasseri returned to live at Charles de Gaulle Airport one final time. He was found dead Saturday in Terminal 2F. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown, 39 degrees in Boston at 619. Ahead on All Things Considered, one woman's case for remaining in Senegal. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. In business news, Massachusetts residents who receive Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, benefits will now be able to buy groceries online from Big Y. The Springfield-based supermarket announced it will accept online SNAP debit card payments through the Instacart Marketplace. Big Y joins 17 other major retailers in the state that allow SNAP purchases online. SNAP benefits cannot be used for delivery fees. On Wall Street today, stocks closed the day lower. The Dow was down six-tenths of a percent at 33,537. NASDAQ off 1.12% at 11,196. And the S&P 500 down about nine-tenths of a percent at 39.57. Marketplace is coming up in about 10 minutes with all the day's business news. This is WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetics therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Sports, the Celtics will host the Thunder tonight over at the Garden. Should be clear and cool tonight. The lows around 30 degrees. Increasing clouds tomorrow. The highs around 44. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. Opening November 25th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There's a through line connecting three of the biggest stories of our time, climate change, migration, and political extremism. We're taking a journey that connects these dots, traveling from Senegal to Morocco to Spain. And it begins with a question that millions of people experiencing climate change are wrestling with. Do I stay or go? 
Life in the Senegalese city of San Luis is defined by water and the fish that live in it. There are daily patterns. Fishing boats called pirogues go out each morning at four and come back every afternoon. There are yearly cycles too. The biggest pirogues take a pause every fall when people repair and repaint for the new season. Every evening, the spot where smaller boats come ashore becomes a pop-up market. And here, the strict gender roles in San Luis become clear. While men unload their catch, women wade into the water up to their knees. Men hoist bright-eyed swordfish, tuna, and boxes piled with snapper and mahi-mahi. And the fish that are not sold fresh, well, they wind up a five-minute walk from where the boats land, where women work at the Fish Transformation Center. The first thing that hits you when you arrive here is the smell. It's not a bad smell, but it's a sharp, pungent smell of salt and fish and fermentation. It's a hot day, and the fresh catch won't stay fresh for long. So this is a center where people, they use the term transform the fish into products that can be shipped great distances inland. And the key tool for the transformation is salt. Once we wash the fish, we put it in these containers, and then we put salt on it. Then we close it for three or four days, then we sell it. Day Maram Jope learned the art of fish preservation from her mother. A basin at her feet is full of salted fish. This will last months without refrigeration. I like this kind of job better than any other job. Why? What do you love about it? I earn my own living. I don't ask anyone for money. And if I have a problem, I can solve it myself. We can see the ocean very close right here. When you were a child, how far away was it when your mother was doing this work? It was very far from here. But now the sea is advancing. Do you worry that someday the sea might be here and you will not be able to work here? We're very worried about that. One day, we don't know. We're really worried. What will you do if that happens? Run away and see if the government can help us? <laughs> Run away to Spain, maybe? <laughs> no, that's too complicated. But many men are running away to Europe. It's not just the pressures of climate change. Boats from Europe and China are scooping up Senegal's fish, so it's harder than ever for Senegalese people to make a living from the sea. The situation worries a matriarch named Yaram Fall. She's the head of an economic interest group for the women who preserve fish. She represents hundreds of Senegalese women who do her kind of work. In late afternoon, she pours tea in the second floor of her home. Ocean waves crash in the background just outside her door. The sea destroyed many of the homes here during a flood a couple of years ago. It wasn't even a storm, just a tide higher than anyone here had seen in decades. But Yaram Fall insists she's not going anywhere. I have a motto saying that I'm going to stay here, work here, and succeed here. Stay here, work here, succeed here. Yeah. 
As someone who deals with fish every day, she has seen the ways that commercial overfishing and climate change are squeezing the people of San Luis. Mais il y a des espèces qui sont en voie de disparition. There are species who are disappearing. Like mackerel, they used to be abundant starting in the fall. Maintenant, on peut attendre jusqu'au mois de février. Now we wait until the month of February before we can see those species. We've spoken to so many fishermen who say, I cannot earn a living here, so I'm going to Europe. Do you know many people who have left, who have given up? There are a lot of them said that they're going to go to Europe, but I think this is not the good solution. And so when a young man says, I have to leave, what do you say to him? They don't understand. I've been to many European countries such as Italy, and it's not easy there. You can find a job, but here too, there is a job. You have to believe in it. Yarmfall travels all over the world for culinary and cultural events, representing the Senegalese women who preserve fish. And she's seen how Senegalese people live in Switzerland, in Canada. She is adamant the grass is not greener over there. Taxes are higher, she says. One meal of smoked fish in Italy costs what she'd pay for three days of food at home. The development of Africa comes from its own people. Hmm. All those young people, they would like to go. That must be frustrating for you. Yes. Outside her balcony, we hear a rhythmic chanting. On the beach, men are organizing the fishing nets, a row of arms pulling in rhythm, hand over hand. Even little kids join in. Two weeks later, we are more than 2,000 miles away in southern Spain. On a strawberry farm, workers from across sub-Saharan Africa poke seedlings into a raised bed. One of these migrant farm workers is from that coastal town in Senegal. His name is Abdoulaye Beye. I pull out my phone and show him the video of the men organizing the nets on the shore where he used to live. <laughs> His face lights up. That's your family? <laughs> you know? It's San Louis, yeah, Genda. Your name is Ah, you're from there. Those are my people, he says. We're all like family in that community. In 2006, he gave up his life as a fisherman. Bay worked as an undocumented immigrant for 10 years in Spain, 10 years without seeing his wife or son. Now he has papers and can go back to visit, and he sends them two euros out of every five he earns. Is the life in Spain more difficult than the fishing life in Senegal? This is harder work, but you can make more money here than in Senegal. Fishing is also hard, but you don't make that much money. In San Luis, we spoke to a woman named Yaram Fall. She's the head of the group of women who preserve fish. And she said to us, people need to stay because the future of Africa will be built by Africans. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's a good rule, but there's no work there. So you can't find work, and if you find work, it's not enough to make a living. It's barely enough to eat. Sometimes when he eats fish in Spain, he thinks about where his meal came from. 
He wonders whether commercial trawlers from Europe pulled the fish out of the Senegalese waters he used to sail off the coast of Saint Louis. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 39 degrees in Boston at 629. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown. Stocks were down slightly today. Marketplace is coming up next with all the day's business news. In the forecast, it'll be clear and cool tonight. The lows will be around 30 degrees. Increasing clouds tomorrow. The highs will be around 44 We'll get some rain on Wednesday, mainly before 2 in the afternoon. The highs will be around 50 degrees. Should be mostly sunny on Thursday and Friday. The highs around 45. Again, right now, 39 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LabShares Newton, freeing up biotechs to focus on difficult diseases at state-of-the-art BL2 labs with a range of services and amenities, labshares.com. And the Umbrella Stage Company, presenting Jonathan Larson's Tony and Pulitzer-winning rock musical, Rent, runs now through December 4th, theumbrellastage.org.